episode of our series, Leaders for Humanity. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Alan Watkins, CEO of Complete, a first hour mind-body medicine expert who since has broadened his approach in a truly integral fashion. As you can also see with the topic for today's session, which will be on spiral dynamics continued from democracy towards crowdocracy. A warm welcome also to my co-host Hotti, <laughs> Hotti to who, um, uh, who will introduce Alan in a second properly. Yet before, I will briefly introduce the flow of what we're doing. We start with a note about our good organizations project, then a proper presentation of Alan and some reflections from Alan on what he sees to be a good life for himself. And then we will go straight into our dialogue. This brings me immediately to our Good Organizations project Otti and I started now almost a year ago, I think so. Our inquiry is about how can organizations become good in this complex and fast changing world? How do organizations develop their ability to be responsible and sustainable at three levels we are always looking at? The first level is as actors inside society trying to contribute to a good society and to the commons. Second level is as a container for the individuals and the relationships they have with the uh, communities that they are part of. And third, finally, as a breeding ground, as an enabler for the individuals to become, develop and lead a mature, a good life. And now without further ado, I would like to ask Otti, to start the proper introduction. Thank you very much and welcome everybody. And it's a huge, huge pleasure to introduce Alan today because Alan and I, I think we bumped into each other almost a year ago. And it was just at the time where uh, we were thinking about teal and uh, spiral dynamics and so on. And uh, of course we have been quite critical. So it was lovely to find Alan who has been not only working with Ken Wilber, knowing and using all the uh, the concepts that come from spiral dynamics and, and Ken's work on integrative um, psychology and philosophy, but who has also got decades of experience with uh, many, many important CEOs around the world in implementing that world, and who is uh, a doctor by degree and qualification, hence can bring to the consciousness and uh, philosophical lens also a, a knowledge about kind of human body and physiology, which we will hear, I'm sure, about a little bit more. But most importantly, Alan is someone who really wants to change the world for good, which has impressed me from the first hour, bringing to that challenge the theories, his uh, being a polymath and being able to go across many, many, many other kind of uh, models and thoughts and integrating it all. And as you might remember, um, one of my big challenges with teal and spiral dynamic was the lack of coherence. Now, Alan is Mr. Coherence, because um, not only was his uh, company called Complete Coherence, now, now complete, um, but he has written about uh, coherence in his now 10 books. His 10th book is going to come out in September. Um, but it's really all about how he is developing a model that can transcend individual vertical development to go into organizational development and change and into societal development. And that is exactly, as Antoinette just uh, said, what we are looking for as well. So it's going to be a really exciting 
um, session today. Alan, thank you again for being here. Um, big, big pleasure. And of course, all the other things you can see on the slide, Alan has uh, recorded TED lectures with more than 6 million viewers. Hey, he's CEO, CEO of his own data-driven company. And um, um, as, uh, as I said, 10 books. Um, I'm, I'm extremely impressed because as you know, there are people who are struggling to write the first books, no names made. Um, and Alan has written three last year. So Alan, um, I don't know what to say. And I'm sure I'm not doing you justice. Oh, I've forgotten one thing. Here's the claim to fame. Everybody who is now ignoring all the kind of uh, knowledge and insights that come from Alan might be impressed by the fact that Alan won an industry Oscar for the uh, best animated short film in 2016. So here's a, another claim to fame. But Alan, still, I'm sure I'm not doing you justice. So um, I would love you to give people a little bit of a flavor of who you are, but I want to start with a challenge because, of course, you're a highly intellectual uh, colleague. In one of your books, you describe a scene that when you speak to CEOs and ask them about their identity, they very often fall into the trap to identify themselves with their job titles. If you say that's not allowed, then they normally describe themselves um, in a series of personal qualities you write. So my challenge to you is how would you describe yourself without falling into that trap of job titles or, or qualities? Who is Alan Watkins? And again, a super warm welcome to the series. Well, thank you very much, uh, Antoinette and Otti. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I'm really looking forward to an exploratory conversation that goes in uh, any direction. Uh, it's always, of course, tricky to describe myself. Uh, I usually leave that to other people, um, and then people pick up the details that is relevant to them. Um, uh, what I would say is, if I can share a story uh, that kind of brings to life um, my slightly strange journey through life so far, uh, a real great adventure. Um, when I was a, a doctor and I worked as a, a jobbing physician, um, in primary care, but also in hospitals for 12 years. Um, for me, uh, uh, one of the reasons I left 25 years ago is uh, it was always about reducing humor and suffering at scale. So um, when I was a consultant on the ward, I would have maybe 50 patients on the ward and 150 patients in the outpatients department. So 200 souls that I could try and make a difference to. Um, and I thought, well, actually, if I was in general practice, most general practitioners have 2000 patients, but of course, 1800 of them are well, so they only really see 200. So it's the same number. Um, and so one of the reasons I left is because it was always about a, making a scale difference to humanity for me. And so um, 25 years ago, I thought, well, actually, if I work with leaders in multinational corporations, some of our clients, and we have 100 clients uh, today, um, uh, preside over companies where there are 350,000 employees. So if we can change the quality of leadership um, in those companies, it could directly affect 350,000 people. If you take the families, you know, you're talking about at least a million or 2 million people. If you take the supply base, you're at 10 million people from one company and we have 100 companies. So um, I thought for my own journey, that was uh, much more the kind of how I wanted to spend my life, is to try and reduce human suffering at scale. Um, and um, in order to do that, uh, human beings need to develop. So the purpose of Complete is 
to accelerate human development and reduce suffering. It's the two sides of that coin. So if that tells you a little bit about me and where I'm coming from. Well, that's, that's wonderful um, because I think we also started up with the idea that we have to end suffering machines because many organizations are suffering machines. So I think we already have a lot in common there. Um, I would like to tease out though a little bit more um, even of a life in your life ingrained part. And so I tried just another question. Um, if you look at the main adventures, because you would have had many, just by the way, what you're doing um, in your life, what has influenced your thinking most? Um, there are many experiences in my life. Uh, one of the uh, great things about being a, a doctor when I was doctoring is it puts you up close and personal with uh, human beings on the greatest day of their life and the worst day of their life. Um, and so, you know, I, I did quite a bit of obstetrics. So to be able to deliver a baby is an unbelievably wonderful experience. And that's often the greatest day of many other people's lives. Uh, and I did quite a bit of that, including delivering three of my own four sons. Uh, so that was quite uh, fantastic. Um, and But also you're there when you have to tell people they have cancer. Mm -hmm. So that's often one of the worst or hardest days of their life. Um, and so... Uh, part of what influenced my thinking is that um, if I can tell you a story about I was once uh, many years ago in the room um, with a medical colleague of mine at the moment when somebody passed, you know, the, the, the literally their last breath. Mm -hmm. um, and it's quite a profound moment if you're in the room when somebody dies. Um, and I found myself having to sort of just sit there for a while. And my other medical colleague who was stood next to me had a very different response, uh, which was sort of, if I paraphrase, was, oh, oh, he's died. Oh, never mind. Um, right, lunch. Lunch, I think. I got sausages in the canteen. Are you coming? For, I think they've got sausages and pies. Are you coming? And I was like, no, dude, I've got I've to sit here for a bit. <laughs> I can't rush. I'm just going to have to sit here for a while. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that taught me is two human beings can have a near identical experience um, and for one person uh, it can be a profound experience and you can learn a lot about what does it mean to be alive when you're there at the moment of death it teaches you a lot about what it means to be alive and another person stood next to me could be in the room at the same moment and it literally has virtually no effect and so that taught me that actually it's not just about the experiences that we have on our adventure. It's what value do you extract from those experiences? And so all through my life, you know, I've been, you know, quite, uh, I guess I'm quite a reflective person. Um, I like to, um, if I can use an Australian word, fossic. I like to fossic uh, from my experiences. Now, fossicking is a, a word that Australians use when they're in the outback, kicking around in the dust of Cooper PD or the Red Centre. And then they find a precious stone right in the dust. It's called fossicking. So I think about that often and often talk to our clients about the phenomena of fossicking, that when you're going through your day, there are these wonderful nuggets of understanding and insights every day. And most people just sort of tromp over them and walk past. Uh, whereas I like to try and extract the value from each moment, from this conversation, uh, from any moment, and then put, the, put that to good use. So I, I'm a fossicker uh, in life. 
that is already beautiful. Um, Oti, we should take that up later because we have questions about how to develop virtues. And I think um, you have brought us already a very dear um, example of what could make the difference there. Not going into the discussion, but the, the, the relevance of emotions, I think, is something you're alluding to. Um, which, of course, brings me to another thing. I'm not going to ask you how it was to write books with Ken Wilber. Because I think Ken himself is writing in the foreword of Wicked and Wise that he was surprised that it actually worked out because Ken was saying he's quite dogmatic. I think he said it's kind of hygiene. There are certain rules when it comes to his framework that he wants people to stick to. And it normally doesn't work, but with you it worked perfectly. So I was, I was, uh, was very intrigued by that statement, but I'm not going to go there. I, I wanted to ask you one short final question and then we start the inquiries. Based on what you said, Alan, what, what, what is good life for you? Um, breathing in and out uh, is a start, um, and um, uh, we're just releasing an app into the corporate space, which is very much to do with um, uh, mental health. Um, and on that app, to try and help people develop uh, much greater levels of emotional awareness, emotional literacy, and emotional regulation, um, you know, we've uh, trying to help them understand what are they actually feeling on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Now, when you ask people, you know, oh, you know, hi, Otto, how are you? And Otto goes, fine. Um, usually most people guess. So their answer, fine, is a guess. So if you question them, this is quite a fun experiment to do with people. Say, um, okay, Otto, you say you feel fine, but maybe what you're actually feeling is not bad. Maybe what you're actually feeling is all right. Maybe what you're actually feeling is so-so. Maybe what you're actually feeling is okay. Do you even know the difference between fine, not bad, okay, all right, and so-so? Most people go, what? You know, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, huh? Um, these are different emotional states. Fine, not bad, okay, all right, and so-so. They are different planets in the universe of emotions. And so um, a good life for me is I start every day. Uh, my home planet is pathologically cheerful. Um, you know, so I've, I've at times in my life mistakenly been living on the planet of miserable or irritated or... It's just not as much fun. So I start every day. So a good life for me is I start each day on the planet of pathologically cheerful. Now that might be annoying to other people that I'm just upbeat and cheerful most of the time, but it's a choice. Um, I'm, I'm generally a pretty cheerful person. Um, you know, it, it's difficult to sustain misery. I mean, humor just keeps breaking in. Um, so that's what a good life looks for me. I'm breathing in and out and every day I'm pathologically cheerful. I have to admit, I already nicked that from you and shared it on LinkedIn and told everybody you have to start your day with a shower of contention of that. And emotional literacy is also another aspect which you bring in your books. Um, but of course, I'm galloping into other areas. And I know that Ochina wants to properly frame the dialogue. We're gonna, when we talk about leadership in the in our last segment, um, emotional literacy, but I think also your notion on we are trained to calm ourselves down. That's not really the point. It's about positive, negative. I think that's really a nugget. Uh, I, I've already forgotten how that word is there. Fossicking? Yes, fossicking. So that's a nugget we will try to fossick together because I thought it was really interesting and not well known. And here I think your being a doctor really will help. Mm -hmm. Now, what does that lead us to? Our um, I'm going to bring up our general inquiry structure, which as our regular listeners know, know, normally leads from the question, what is good and what is a good society? 
to what is a good organization, because we're defining a good organization as a, um, as I think Blaine Fowler told us, or Alejo Sison, is an, is an immediate intermediate association, is an organism of society, and therefore needs to um, both inherit and support that good society that it is embedded into. And then finally, the question of leadership, which again, in our philosophy, so to speak, has to be declined on that basis. If leaders is a role in an organization, we need to understand what role that is in order to make the organization good. And again, the organization needs to be good in the context of that society. So this interdependence and embeddedness is again something that we will explore because I think it is to degree an undercurrent in your thinking, Alan, of course, based on some of the theories relating to spiral dynamics. And as I said, we are critical of some of those. So I want to suggest the following structure for our Socratic dialogue. Firstly, we're going to have four sections. One briefer on what is good, but also going briefly into spiral dynamics to just refresh people's knowledge. Secondly, on the good society. And I'm really excited about uh, Alan's book on crowdocracy. So if, you, if you've never heard about crowdocracy, listen up. It's going to get really interesting. Then we're going to go to the good organization and we're going to look at Alan's book on changing the workplace, but also innovation. So again, people interested in innovation, make sure you don't miss that piece. And finally, which is, I think, really, Alan, where you started, is that notion of leadership development, vertical development. And we're going to hear more about that um, there. The structure in each, each section, I will suggest we first allow you to explain what your thinking is. Then Antoinette and I might do a little bit of challenge or exploration. And then we should synthesize, like you said earlier, what sticks for us from the conversation. We're not here to find answers or final solutions. We're here to grow through dialogue. So with that in mind, I want to start, off, start us off with the first section. And it's an important section. It's a question of morality. It's a question of what is good. And people will remember maybe that when Antoinette and I wrote about Thiel and Spiral Dynamic, we said one of the problems with the model for us is a lack of a clear morality, of a clear ethics. Because Ken Wilber said it's an iron rule that um, every level is good, so to speak. Every level is true because people are contextually in their respective reality at the level of development that they are. Therefore, you cannot really compare goodness. And we say, well, actually, um, we don't believe that. So we want to start off with a little bit of the investigation there. And I'm going to hand over to Antoinette to start us off with the, the, um, the first question in this, in this kind of section, so to speak. Well, I start with a more generic question before we then really um, go deeper into spiral dynamics. But uh, my first question is, in general, um, because you write a lot about society and you come up with a new crossy model, what is a good society? Because you're a measurement guy as well, at least from your training, I would like to know how would you measure good on the societal level? Uh, and maybe last one, um, usually politicians measure it with GDP. Would you do that as well? Or what are other measures you would see there? So you've all had about five questions, so you may need to prompt me as we go through this conversation. <laughs> I'll try and take them in, in, yeah, sorry. in some sort of sequence, but if I forget, then come back. for you in an hour. <laughs> yes. Um, so, uh, of course, Ken is partly right, uh, saying that, you know, how we define good is dependent on our development. So what's good to know? Uh, okay, so 
Ken's partly right in that what is good to a six-year-old is different than what a 12-year-old would define as good, is different from what an 18-year-old would find. So it's developmentally constrained to some extent. Mm -hmm. uh, but your question is more above and beyond that, is there not some level of goodness and morality? Um, and spiral dynamics isn't really designed to capture that because it's a different line of development. I mean, th this is the values line of development, spiral dynamics. And morality, you know, is the moral line of development. So it's a different line of development, which is why there's often some confusion. Um, so you, one can measure moral development. Uh, I mean, Kohlberg did a lot of the original work, uh, you know, you know, and there's a lovely example of the pharmacist whose wife's dying of cancer. And, you know, the, and you can assess when people answer those questions, what is their level of moral sophistication? So one shouldn't confuse the values evolution line with the moral evolution line. These are in the same way as people confuse the cognitive development with emotional and social intelligence. These are different. You know, you can have somebody who's very advanced emotionally and socially intelligent, but they're not necessarily cognitively that sophisticated or vice versa. You can have people who are very cognitively sophisticated who can't manage a relationship because they've got very little. These are different lines of development. Mm -hmm. um, so I think... Um, Having said that, um, you know, what is a good society? Uh, I think a, a society that uh, can manifest levels of care and compassion and be uh, supportive and inclusive of all of its stakeholders. Um, uh, so that's where we're moving. Um, and I don't, by its stakeholders, I don't just mean human stakeholders because human beings are in an ecosystem with all other uh, living organisms. So uh, a good society is one that is able to, um, you know, have a compassionate embrace of all of its stakeholders um, uh, and can evolve uh, to embrace all of them. Um, and I don't mean that just in a green, isn't this, you know, we're, we're massively inclusive, that's a good thing, but, um, you know, is actually evolving through yellow and, and teal um uh, ultimately um so that's what i would think is a good society um you know we take better care of everybody not an elite you know we're not privileging the one percent so if we can evolve and take more compassionate care then uh we're in the right direction thank you for an interesting song inclusiveness caring and there's a notion of development which is i think transient in what you say and i think Antoinette, this actually is quite close to our idea of the Aristotelian flourishing. I want to, I want to go back, Alan, if you allow me, um, to that notion of the different lines, because, of course, people might remember in Ken's work, but also in, in Don Beck's work in terms of spiral dynamics, there is this notion of, um, of socio-historic evolutionary theory at the backbone, and then in Ken's work, there are different lines, and I think up to 12 different lines of of development that can happen not necessarily at the same time. And whilst I don't want to go into too much depth, I think just as a reminder, because it's going to come back to us, I think both in your interpretation of history and crowdocracy and in your model for HR development. So the levels of spiral dynamics were, and I got my notes here because I couldn't possibly remember. So beige, purple, red, blue, orange, green, and then we go from first to second tier, as Alan just said, to yellow and turquoise. Um, 
two things that you mentioned in your book that you you take out there seems to be a fluctuation between values centered on individualist or individual versus collective that seem to be in in kind of a, like a, like an exchange going from one to the other and as you say there is an evolution that is both at individual and collective level regarding values but I, on that on that notion alan please enhance the picture as necessary um I want to question that that point that you made on value versus moral development, because many people would say an ethical theory is a value theory. So that contradiction between morality and value seems to be somewhat difficult for me, because especially if, we, if you look at the sub portion of ethics, that is normative morality. That is what the values in a given society would uphold as the standard, so to speak. And here I would still suggest and we're talking to Marcus Gabriel shortly about moral facts. So he's, he, he argues that if you go into your living room and you kill your mother, that under no circumstances is a good thing to do. So there are moral facts that are transient and not dependent on, on cultural or historical context. So I still want to go back to that notion of every level is kind of good or true in itself. Would you then say a red society is, is, is a good society? Probably not based on what you just explained. I think when you have a, uh, a, I wouldn't agree with that. If you have an evolutionary model, it's very easy to denigrate earlier levels of uh, of evolution. I mean, that's like, uh, you know, when I was a teenager, well, teenagers are all stupid and da 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 da. Um, well, we were all teenagers once. So we've all evolved through these levels. So it's rather bizarre that we denigrate earlier levels of development because essentially we're denigrating our own evolution. Mm. Um, you can't get to blue if you haven't been through red and you can't get to orange if you haven't been through blue. So to denigrate an earlier level of development is to denigrate yourself. Well, so old, old relation, relative, relativist argument, right? And then the Holocaust is okay. No, no, I'm not saying the Holocaust is okay, but that's a moral, that's more of the moral. And this is, goes back to the confusion between morality and values. Values is what's important to me. That's a different phenomena than what is morality. So, uh, I mean, if you've got a speaker coming up who's going to dig into moral facts, this is a, a conversation to expand with him and he'll give you the chapter and verse on the morality. Uh, but since this conversation is uh, more hinging around the values rather than the morality, you know, he's probably better placed to give you the levels of moral evolution. Uh, but uh, what we're talking about now is the confusion between these two lines. And there are, of course, hundreds of lines of development. Uh, so what I've wrote, written about when we're talking to uh, CEOs is the lines that matter in most business. So, for example, we could look at our uh, cooking line of development. Uh, now, I'd be virtually zero on that. I mean, I virtually burn water. Um, you know, so uh, I'm terrible at cooking, but then I don't run a restaurant. So that doesn't really matter. Um, so it's really important to see these lines. They're not the same thing. Moral evolution and moral development is not the same thing as values evolution. Uh, so I'm not condoning the Holocaust uh, at all. That, but that's a problem with the moral evolution, not necessarily the values evolution. So that's why Ken's right in a way is there's a legitimacy to each of the value stages and to denigrate earlier levels is to denigrate our own evolution. That's separate from the moral debate. These are different lines of development. Um, and so one has to debate these things separately rather than confuse. Because when we confuse these lines, it's the same mistake as if we would confuse cognitive sophistication with emotional intelligence. And as most people now realize, they're two profoundly different phenomena. So 
really important to keep these lines separate. Can, can I try just to understand that? Um, and I think um, it may, may be best to understand if we look at further stages of um, evolution. If we take compassion or care, I mean, you said that is a good society. Um, we can have a look at this, how you would frame that on, on a green value level, um, or how you would frame that on a Turkish um, value level. And, and maybe there we can also sense the differences. Because when I read, especially what Wilbur um, was saying about the green meme, uh, meme um, I found it also somehow somewhat confusing because I was thinking he's talking about self-esteem all the time and narcissism, which is coming out of that, but not so much about compassion, which I see also clearly in the green bucket. If I look at positive organizational scholarship, for instance, and so I was, I was starting getting confused. So how, what do I make out of that? Let's take compassion because you said that's an important moral aspect of the good society. If we would just delineate that. Well, uh, if I can pick up the green, the turquoise in relation to compassion. And remember, just going back to your earlier point, uh, Otti, is that um, uh, every level has an upside and a downside. Um, so as the pendulum swings from the individual focus in the red and the orange and the yellow to the collective focus in the blue, the green and the turquoise, uh, as we evolve, the pendulum swicks, switches individual, collective, individual, collective, as we evolve at these levels. Um, and um, it's just the uh, sophistication of that compassion. So the moral development of that compassion varies by red. So, you know, red would be a very unsophisticated version of compassion. Green would be a much more sophisticated, mainly manifesting as care. So when I was uh, uh, working as a doctor, um, uh, you definitely see in most health care systems, human beings operating with quite uh, a degree of care. Mm -hmm. But care is not the same thing as compassion. Um, and so uh, I did a piece of work some while ago for the, uh, uh, the NHS. And one of their, they created like many organizations, they decided to invent six new values for our organization so a standard sort of organizational thing that happens and then try and impose them which is always a mistake we can talk about that later um and one of them was compassion and i said well look this is an aspiration it's not true uh, because compassion is not widespread in the system care is definitely widespread but compassion isn't compassion is a much more sophisticated thing mm -hmm. because compassion is not just the alleviation of suffering but the alleviation of the cause of that suffering so you have to go to a much more sophisticated and deeper understanding. Why is that suffering there in the first place? Whereas care would be, you know, almost a symptom uh, alleviation type stance. Uh, so if you've got pain, I want to take the pain away. That would be caring. But if I'm compassionate, uh, I want to do that, transcend and include. I want to take the pain away, but also really deeply understand why that pain was there in the first place. So I have to hunt in the pursuit of that pain. And what's really causing that pain? And I have to try and alleviate that. Mm -hmm. So the alleviation of suffering, um, you know, compassion is more, uh, as we're able to uh, get more and more sophisticated in our moral evolution, uh, the subtlety and complexity and uh, embrace of our compassion gets greater and greater. Mm -hmm. So that would be more of the moral line rather than the values line. Mm -hmm. uh, does it make sense? Alan, can I come in here? Uh, two things come up, Antoinette. One, um, cure versus care in Harry Minsberg's discussion. 
Mm -hmm. right? Which I think, Alan, alludes a little bit to the, the curing aspect that you brought in here. I think secondly, interestingly, yesterday with Simon Weston and Joan Lurie, we had a conversation about intervention in organizations. And they were describing these typical, Alan, as you, as you just mentioned, value workshops, right? So there's a problem with the organization. It must be a problem of the values of the individuals. Therefore, let's create 20 values and then teach everybody to maintain those values. And of course, everybody hates it. And uh, Joan's point, Joan is a good friend of us working on organizational role analysis, was, was suggesting actually the system was the problem. It wasn't individual values, it was the relationships that were being created in the system, a little bit like the context, the cultural context that you described, which were the problem of the behaviors that were coming from that. And I think, again, I, like you described, taking that step back and look, looking systemically at the root causes is probably something that evolves. But I want to throw in one more, one more problem, and then I think we leave it, um, but it's very interesting to get your views. The, this notion of green, so as Antoinette says, the, the bad green, so to speak, right? So there's a notion in Frederick Laloux's writing, he's suggesting in 2015, that's where the old world ended and teal came about. You're saying in, in 2010 or so, the kind of old HR died and the, the new kind of models are coming on, the, the new democracy models are starting to arise. Um, it is based on the idea that green is coming to an end. And the way it's described, many challenge is a misinterpretation of postmodernism. Because postmodernism, as Putnam is writing, is actually a move to an extreme I society. It's an individualism that is getting ever more um, prevalent in the way people interact in this society. Whereas green is a collectivist stage of development. So there seems to be a very clear difference in assessment of post what the postmodern society is. And Robert Putnam has, has in upswing extensively provided data to back up his viewpoints on the development from we society in the early days of Tocqueville in America to this I society, which is getting extreme. So I just wonder, because you're using that also in your books, right? I just wonder what your thought is on, on that critique. You know, we, we must be careful not that's right, this is wrong. You know, green moves to yellow and green is more collective and yellow uh, is more individualistic, but yellow moves to turquoise. Now, you can't get to turquoise without going through a slight swing to the individual. That's just how the evolution works. So all the way up the spiral, individual, collective, individual, collective, individual. So it's not like these things are right and wrong. Um, you know, uh, the evolution involves both. You know, it's just the ebb and flow of evolution. Um, so that's how, how I would see it. So uh, is postmodern wrong because it's become more individualistic? No, that's how the pendulum evolves. It swings individual, collective, individual. And so we, we have to move to a more individual to bounce off that to get to the next level of collectivism. So it's just part of the evolutionary process. What's that? Which is what Marx would have claimed, of course. Well, uh, quite possibly. Um, uh, so, you know, it's just the evolutionary process. You know, so what's interesting is in the spiral dynamics view of the world is the downside of any level is the evolutionary stimulus. So when the wheels come off green and you get, as Ken described, the mean green that Antoinette was calling out, um, uh, then that provides the evolutionary stimulus to the next level up. So in one way, it's bad because people are being mean green. But without that badness, without the wheels coming off, there's no evolutionary imperative to change. Mm. So is it really bad? 
um, you know, so then that's a sort of judgment call. Um, if we hadn't, if the wheels hadn't come off massively in 2008 at the sort of peak of orange, um, and people got a real clear view that 50 men, and it was men, not women, I mean, I've got 34 names, only one woman so far, 50 men caused a global financial crisis. Um, and those 50 men uh, did that out of orange self-interest and, uh, you know, desire to make a lot of money themselves, without any regard to the fact that, you know, within a year, we double American debt. Within a year, 30 million people are unemployed globally. Within a, a year, hundreds of thousands of suicides, all down to the greed of 50 men. So that cruelly exposes the dark side of orange, you know, the greed and manipulation. Um, but in a way, that greed and manipulation, that dark side, wakes a lot more people up to the need to move to green. And we've seen uh, an acceleration in the green, green flourishing. And as Ken has written, um, you know, in, in his book, uh, Trump and the Post-Truth World, um, you know, with the, in 1960, only 2% of the planet had reached green. Now it's 20%. Uh, but the wheels have been coming off green in the last five years. You know, we've got nihilism and narcissism, the evil twins of the dark side of green and the green swamp. But that's sort of necessary in the evolutionary process. The wheels come off every level. And in a way, that's what enables the emergence of the level beyond that. Yeah, so I'm it's just, just the ebb and flow of evolution. I'm just, I mean, I, I mean, you, you explain it very logically, but I'm still kind of left a little bit wondering whether um, this is not a very American, um, much more fitting to the American context type of situation. Because um, this, at least the narcissism way, for instance, we have good data for the US, we have no data whatsoever for Europe or the Rhineland context. So maybe we're behind, who knows? Maybe we leapfrogging, maybe we have defined green differently. I mean, that's very difficult. And I think it's interesting because it's of course much easier to look um, in retrospective where I can see, and you always also picture it very nicely. You can see how it uh, develops. Whereas now we're kind of looking into the future and I'm just seeing like um, maybe here some of the um, usual things which are taken into account in evolution series would be helpful to understand why we have different trajectories and maybe even maybe even have um, different colors. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going so far because I'm not the specialist yet in, in spiral dynamics. You are. Um, but it just occurs to me that this is a very strong American situation and um, that, that we have also a different interpretation of um, humanism. Funnily a uh, enough, a little bit more like pragmatism. I would have thought this is American, but obviously with all the woke and all, all the things which are happening in the US, we have much more the postmodern um, um, interpretation there. Well, uh, it depends where you get your data from, I guess. Um, I mean, we work with 100 companies all over the world. So every geography, every market sector, and we, you know, these value systems exist everywhere. Um, as a general brush stroke is, there's more collectivism in the East and more individualism in the West. Um, so the most extreme individualistic adherence you'll find in America. Mm. And, you know, if you go to Japan, it's difficult for them to even articulate their own identity without referencing a collective. So who am I? Uh, you know, I can't even describe who I am if I'm Japanese without referencing five family members. So my identity isn't that individualistic. 
Um, Sheena Isengar has a lovely TED talk on that. Very entertaining if you want to watch that. Um, so the way that we self-identify is different around the world. As I say, uh, the East is more collectively identified. The West is. So when we deal with international companies, what you'll often see is, um, you know, the Western mindset privileges the importance of the individual in the team, you know, individual expertise, individual prowess and all of that. So they overprivilege the individual and they underprivilege the value of a team. Now, when you go to the East, they do the opposite. So it's the same mistake, but just in a different direction is saving face and the collective uh, cohesion of that team is more important. They often lack the individual spark. Uh, and so both sides are making the same mistake is you're overprivileging. So this is a polarity, essentially. You need both to really be successful. You need brilliant individuals and a brilliant team. Uh, and so, you know, different parts of the world will privilege one over the other. You know, my view is just as, you know, we need all of this. We need all, all the levels of the spiral. We need all aspects of who we all are. Um, and that's what a good society looks like, is that ability to understand all of that. And it's very complicated. So you have to study. Um, I mean, the models we've been talking about this morning, there's many ways of seeing this. And, you know, uh, we get a, um, a good society when we can embrace more and more data. So I, I heard the definition of enlightenment is the ability to embrace every single data point available at any point in time. And if you can do that, you're truly enlightened. And that's a good society, an enlightened society. So the vision uh, of our company is enlightened leaders in all walks of life. Mm -hmm. That's what we hope to see because... If you can embrace all of these data, all of these perspectives in a sort of beautiful, compassionate balance, then uh, you're truly enlightened, in my view. Of course. And I will, Alan, I will just be a little bit interruptive because we have got so many things on the, on the bandwagon. It, it's, it's so exciting to talk about them, um, which, of course, brings up a few thoughts. So I think first section. So there's, there's a different interpretation of values versus morality that we can dig into. I think we have some skepticism on the, uh, both on the, the notion of you can actually discern these phases in a general way and the bringing from individual development, Piaget, child development, the same notions into cultural development, the idea that it's uh, evolutionary, uh, almost like a, like a necessity. So there, there are some qu questions that I think we will harbor in our minds. Um, I think also this, this um, last point of enlightenment, of course, that brings me to a very rationalist, enlightened, sorry, a Kantian version of enlightenment 200 years ago, which again, we from our Aristotelian perspective would query, right? We would say, mm, is enlightenment really what this is about? Um, but that all said, I think it opens your, your point, just bringing data points, bringing voices into society opens the door to move us into the next section. And I think that's where things get really excited because you have, I think for the first time ever, taken this, um, this uh, spiral dynamics framework and your thoughts about the integrativeness that you just mentioned about uh, a good society to actually propose, as Antoinette just said, it's difficult to predict the future, actually propose a model that could lead us into the next phase of development. I think that is really exciting. Um, so let's go to this notion of crowdocracy. Um, I think it would probably be worthwhile to briefly introduce a section with why is democracy not good enough for going forward? 
So what's the problem with democracy today? Um, maybe we can kickstart that so that people get warmed up. Well, first and foremost, it's not working. Um, and the high tide point within the year 2000, 120 democracies in the world, there are now only, I think, 101. So it's past its sell-by date and it's not working. Um, so if you look around, there's been a political regression globally. So the quality of political leadership has gone backwards. Um, and um, I, I honestly think it's because society has become more complex than democracy can handle. So if you see democracy in its evolutionary context, so uh, one of the things we talk about is let's roll the clock back a little bit and look at democracy as a way of reaching a decision, essentially. Um, so let's look at the evolution of that. So when we were all, you know, hand to mouth survival uh, 200,000 years ago, you know, grubbing around on the plains, uh, it was basically anarchy. Um, and, uh, you know, every man, woman and dog for themselves. Um, so there wasn't any sophistication to the decision making. Your decisions were basically driven by your desire for food, water and shelter. Um, and then it starts to occur to you. So that would be a beige version of decision making, very unsophisticated, very immediate needs. And then a few people start to notice if they gang together, purple, uh, they can survive a bit better. So the decision making uh, becomes tribal which often is just a mob rule, whoever's got the biggest cudgel, you know, and can co-opt a few followers and collectors around them. Um, and th so then you eventually get to autocracy. Um, so autocracy was the dominant decision making. You still see it in many organizations around the world today. It's the autocratic CEO, the power broker. Um, so if you've got an exec board of 10 people, it's what we call a 1v9. You have one autocrat who listens to the pay. Uh, okay, I've heard everything you've said, the answer's X. And the rest of the team, the nine people go, oh, well, I suppose if the boss spoken, we'll have to go along with it. So that's autocracy. Um, now, it's very fast because you've only got one decision maker, um, uh, but it's very risky because it requires that decision maker to make the right call for the collective every time. And as the world becomes more complicated, that becomes harder and harder. That's largely way uh, a lot of companies used to run that way and still many do today. Then you get uh, up to the blue level where you start to get co-leadership. So this is mum and dad or the king and the queen. Um, so the CEO and the CFO or the CEO and the COO, whichever the pair is. So two heads are better than one. They can handle twice the complexity. Um, but the pathology with that is you get the court or in the mum and dad example is you get children trying to put a wedge between mum and dad. So yes, it's better than autocracy because you've got two decision makers who can handle twice the complexity, uh, but you get a court and it becomes divisive. Um, and then there's this enormous leap forward where you get six decision makers. So you go from that kind of co-leadership blue phase to democratic orange phase, where you've got the majority, six people on the board of 10 making the decision. Um, and so it trebles the ability to handle complexity which is every oh this is fantastic this is way better than autocracy it's able to handle complexity but it's not really true uh, as it's practiced today because it's not really the power doesn't really sit with the six it sits with the two swing votes because what happens is democracy bakes in dissent and so one of the reasons you often hear people say oh i hate the politics in this organization well that's because you're running democratically and it bakes in political maneuvering the four people who were outvoted are constantly trying to win two votes so they become the six and they then have the power.
So you'll see this very clearly uh, in, in most democratic societies. Republican, Democrat, it flip-flops. The first thing when the other side gets in is undo everything the previous regime did. And it flip-flops. So it doesn't make long-term sustainable growth very easy because we keep undermining uh, the other side. So this didactic flip-flopping. Um, and so the power sits with the two swing boats rather than the six. So democracy, as it practices, isn't even democratic. If you look in the UK Parliament, of the 650 MPs in Parliament, only three of them actually have a majority in their own constituency. Only three of them are democratically elected. So roughly how it works in the first-past-the-post system is if you get 26% of the vote in your constituency, you're in. So most of the people who voted didn't vote for you. So that's not really the way it was originally conceived, right? Demo democracy is democratic. It's not democratic. So the world's got more complicated, which is why democracy is really struggling to cope. So I think that's why it's gone it's past its sell-by date. And there's lots of evidence and we go in the, in the book Crowdocracy into all that evidence. So then what comes after democracy? There are three uh, evolutionary levels. So we've got sociocracy, which is being practiced particularly in Scandinavia, uh, and you might, we could argue with Antoinette whether some versions of that are being practiced in uh, Switzerland, um, you know, in the cantons. You know, is there some version of collectivism that's going on there? Um, so there are, there's a, something in India called neighborocracy, you know, which is a very interesting phenomena. Um, so a more sort of green social uh, way of making the decision, but it often gets stuck in consensual hell and political correctness, um, reinforcing a collapse back down to democratic orange process and a vote. Um, so we struggle to get beyond the orange version into sociocracy. Uh, you know, you'll see that when we go into proportional representation, representation, for example, often it will weaken the decision making because we water down, we can kind of some unhappy compromise, which is often what happens. And it doesn't necessarily uh, deliver uh, good leadership. So most of the planet is vacillating between orange and green. Now, as you know, there was a leap forward into the second tier with holacracy. So um, if we try to get beyond six v four in a, it's a democratic process, sociocracy and as an attempt to get everybody aligned usually fails. Holacracy was a bit of a breakthrough because that's how you get to 10 zero. And crowdocracy is how do you get to 10,000 v zero? I, how do you align uh, on a mass scale, everybody behind, not the popular answer, because democracy's organizing principle is popularity. Crowdocracy's organizing principle is wisdom. How do you align people behind a wise answer that's, uh, and by wisdom, I mean in service of everybody rather than an elite financial uh, or an elite political or an elite uh, academic. Um, so how do you, crowdocratically align at scale. So that's what crowdocracy is really about. I think maybe to a later stage, just let us kind of clip that in to questions later. We, I would like to see the differentiation to direct democracy because I mean, we're clearly talking all the time about representative democracy. Um, and I would also like to see whether um, this is really all of the problems we're facing. I mean, you're not talking about capitalism, which many people see as the real problem in any crisis which is coming up, but maybe we are going slowly towards there. It just came up again by your historical explanation. 
Alan, just throwing out mm -hmm. a few things, but I, I think as Angelette says, we're going to hold them okay. until you've explained the model, but just not to forget them. I think one, your book is very focused on an Anglo-Saxon context. I think we would argue that some of the European democracies work very well. Um, and I think that's also a discussion we had with Henry Minsberg, right? So there are some extremes that we're seeing somewhere. I think we will argue that holacracy is fundamentally not democratic, because again, in the very structure, the circle leads are appointed and not selected. So there's a vis-a-vis -vis sociocracy in the way we interpret it. So with Ted Rao and James Priest, the discussions on an organization principle in organizations, at least, sociocracy is um, the genus, whilst holacracy is um, the species. Right, holacracy, they would argue, is a subset of sociocracy with stricter rules and actually less democracy than sociocracy. But I'll leave that hanging there for a while. I think it's much more interesting to, to look at this idea of wisdom because you're taking the idea of the wisdom of the crowd. So I, I wonder, before we go into some, some challenge, could you explain the wise crowd? because you're merging two concepts, the wisdom of the crowd, but then you're also going to decentralization of power and governance, which is arguably coming from a different line of, of reasoning. And group and, intelligence is also mixed in and there. And to group get emergent intelligence, as you call it, or, or, or group intelligence. And then secondly, could you uh, illuminate a little bit, because I think that's really interesting, how the different powers in the institution would evolve from the legislation, judiciary and executive how would they evolve to make to contain that system of credocracy? So if we if we put those so that, things, yes, let's do the wisdom out. of the crowd. So James Sirwicki's book, Wisdom of the Crowd, uh, identified four uh, characteristics that you need for wisdom to emerge, and I think he got one wrong, and it's a killer. Um, and so you, you need um, when you get a crowd of people together, uh, often the crowd becomes the mob. And so the quality of the answer dumbs down. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this many, many times. And most people who've worked in business, um, you know, will spend three hours debating, you know, the struggle they've got in their business. And then after three hours, with some very clever people in the room, they come up and their output is, we need to learn to say no. You know, and that's three hours doing that. And you go, oh my God, what happened here? You know, that is a terribly average pathetic answer to this complex really that's you know and it's because the crowd dumbs down mm -hmm. and you get this groupthink thing um and that's because and that will happen if you don't know what the four conditions are and the four conditions aren't present um you know so for the four conditions for, for wisdom to emerge from a crowd is you need diversity of opinion now diversity is important for many reasons in business uh, not because we want gender parity although that's important but because if you get more perspectives in the room, you get better quality answers. If you've got a thousand people, but they've all got basically the same mindset, it's like having one person uh, and you get a poorer answer. So if you get diverse opinions, you know, uh, and di however we define diversity, and that's another conversation, uh, you'll get better quality answers. So that's one of the uh, things that you need uh, for wisdom of the crowd to merge. You need diverse opinions in the room. Then you need independence of thought. And rather ironically, a digital environment helps us here. Um, because if you're contributing digitally, then you're less, to, less likely to be swayed. So imagine if you're in the room and there's a, a big power broker in the room. 
Well, that will undermine your independence. Like, uh, uh, oh, I was going to say something, but Otto's the big power broker here. And I don't really want to contradict Otto. So I won't put forward my own independent thinking here because I don't want to fall out with, 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 with Otto. Um, so um, that then, my independence of thinking is, you know, or, oh, I don't want to contradict Kim Kardashian or whoever it is we hold in great esteem in, in our life. You should want uh, to contradict with me. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, whoever it is, so, so you'll often, in a room, you'll often get the independence of thought eroded because people are influenced by somebody charismatic or somebody famous or somebody in a hierarchical relationship above them or whatever. So you lose your independence of thought. And as you lose your independence of thought, you get poorer quality answers. So you need diversity of thinking and independence of thought. Then you need a delegation of authority or devolution. Uh, and this is the idea that actually um, the people involved in that decision should be the people who are affected by that decision. So when a corporate center rolls up and all the decision becomes centralized uh, and we're far removed from the consequences of that decision, if we don't have to suffer the consequences, we'll make a poorer decision. So, you know, pushing out, you know, devolving uh, responsibility out to the people who are affected by. So centralization in this regard actually makes us create dumber answers because we don't suffer the consequences. So we can, you know, if we make choice A or choice B and we don't have to suffer either way, you know, it won't matter too much to us. So actually, if you are going to have to live with the consequences of your decision, you tend to make a better decision. So that's the devolution. Now, here's the one that James Sirowicki got wrong. So he talked about an aggregation. Uh, and an aggregation is a dumbing down average, right? And we talk about integration. So the fourth quality, and this is the, the critical one, is the integration of the perspectives in the room. So this takes a lot of skill. Because what tends to happen when you have a debate is you know, people come up with views, but being able to weave those views together not in a dumbed down average, you know, it's what we call a camel. A camel is a racehorse designed by committee. Um, you know, so we dumb it down and it gets slow and it's got a hump, right? That's not a better racehorse. We've dumbed it down, you know, learn to say no. You know, so actually we want to honor each perspective and weave them together to get something that transcends and includes all the perspectives. That's integration, not aggregation. So those are the four conditions. Throwing out the wisdom of the crowd, Alan, do you realize that? Because the wisdom of the crowd is a law of big numbers, which means there's a true answer, there's idiosyncratic noise, and by aggregating a noise, you get to the true answer, which of course implies there is one correct answer, which in most wicked problems, of course, is questionable. And then secondly, um, it is an aggregation. The moment you say you go away from the aggregation, you're going away from the wisdom of the crowd, Evidence. Let me, let me put it this way. There's a lovely roomy poem uh, about four blind men examining an elephant. You've probably heard this, right? Um, and one reaches forward, tries to describe, they don't know they're feeling an elephant. One reaches forward, fills the tusk, and he says, oh, we've got a drain pipe. He knocks on it. You can feel it's hard and it's knobbly. And another guy goes, a drain pipe? What are you talking about? It's a rope. It's fibrous. Uh, he's got the tail. And another guy says, Rope, what are you talking about? It's a tree trunk. He's got the leg. It's big. It's hard. It's knobbly. I can't get my hand around it. Oh, I can get my hand around there. How big is your hand? 
Yeah, one's got the tail, one's got the leg. And the other, the fourth guy says, no, no, it's a leather blanket. It's flat, it's rubbery. He's got the ear, right? So the aggregation would be an averaging of the tail, the leg, the ear, and the integration is the elephant. No, but I, I agree and I like your theory better, but you're going away from the mathematical proof that sits behind the wisdom of the crowd theorem as institutionalized by... Uh, I can't pronounce his last name, the book and all the research that ensued. Sort of wiki, right? Um, but that's why I'm saying we've modified that thinking um, to say, actually, in practice, so I get the math, but in practice, how you mine the wisdom in a bunch of human beings is you integrate, not aggregate. No, I, no, find that... I think this is where we will come back to a little bit, because then uh, one thing, Antoinette, that I want to bring out, what I love about Alan's thinking is that there is a fundamental problem of, about governance, right? That is, I think, pervasive in your thing. People talk about democracy and other systems, and they don't go back to, actually, this is all a governance and potentially a decision-making problem. And the most striking aspect of change management, reacting to wicked problem, is one of decisions. Should we change or not? Should we, where should we go? Decision-making is probably the most important change process in any sort of organization. Mm -hmm. Hence, I think your laser focus on governance, decision-making, judgment is extremely, extremely important. And the notion of wisdom is as well. My only contention is that I think the wisdom of the crowd is not wisdom. It's a mathematical aggregation of a phenomena that points towards the right answer if there is a right answer. So in reality, you, what, what you say is we need to upgrade that to still harness opinions as widely as possible because the idea is we can actually get to a superior outcome by deploying a superior decision-making process which by the way as in sociocracy or holacracy is also decentralized centralization cannot answer to wicked problems so i think those things for me stand really out whereas the original wisdom of the crowd aggregation theory is probably less relevant Antoinette. Yeah, no, well, I wanted to dig down on the integration because indeed, I think you nailed it. Um, and this is exactly what we find why diversity also in on average does not work when it comes to complex problems. Or even I looked up some evidence on wisdom of the crowd when it was about wicked problem, usually doesn't work. So I think it's worse and, and, and maybe uh, quite quickly, what would, would I do in the organization? If I was thinking about integration, I would, for instance, turn to what Margaret Heffernan has looked at or the MIT team with the empathy and the perspective taking and you could bring in dialogue. So I see small scale solutions, but what is interesting is that you're thinking out about a big scale solution. And that's why it's worth digging into, especially that mechanism. How would you bring about that type of integration. Um, let, me, let me tell you a couple of quick stories. So we were working with uh, an airline um, and they had a, a leadership team, big team, 17 people. So we made a list of, I said, well, give us a list of all the problems you're facing. And they made a list of 30 things. Um, okay, we discovered that actually about 22 of them were governance issues. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, well, pick one, you know, that one there. Okay, so that's your worst issue, yes. Um, how long have you been stuck on that issue? Three years. I said, okay, I'm going to teach you something now and you're going to solve that issue and all 17 of you are going to agree within the next hour. And they all started laughing because that's not possible. <laughs> you know, we've been stuck for three years. There's no way we're, in an hour we're all going to agree what the answer is to that problem. 40 minutes later, they all agreed. 
Um, and it was sort of embarrassing to them that, my goodness, why have we been stuck for three years? We just got to a solution that we all agreed on after 40 minutes. <laughs> what was wrong with us? And it's because we ran the debate very, very differently. And we basically flushed out all the diversity of opinions and integrated them into a final solution. We didn't average the solution down. So we didn't, you know, take the tusk and the ear and the leg and the tail of the elephant and get to some kind of unhappy you know, sort of horror show of an animal, we found the elephant, mm -hmm. right? And so everybody's answer existed in the final answer. That's a true integration. And so that's how we ran the debate, right? So, uh, and I'll give you another example is a few years ago, uh, when not long after I wrote the book, Crowdocracy, um, I was involved in a little project, uh, which was dealing with unaccompanied asylum seeking children into the UK. And this was going back, I think roughly around about 2018, where um, Kent, which is the main place where um, these kids come in uh, across the channel, uh, had gone from something like 100 of these orphans or unaccompanied asylum-seeking children to 1,000 in a year. And it had overwhelmed uh, the local authorities' ability to cope with it all. So we got all the stakeholders in the room, right, you know, which was the police or the immigration charities, the local authority, you know, the health services, because a lot of these kids... Uh, get radicalized and then it causes other problems. You know, we've got everybody in the room and we ran a sort of crowdocratic process. And so this was a room full of 70 people from about seven or eight stakeholders. So just to prove that you could start to go from that um, airline uh, leadership team of 17 to 70 and then beyond. And if you set the conversation up, so you get a, away from this didactic, I'm right, you're wrong, you know, somebody's got the winning answer and, and you go, forget all of that. What we're trying to do is to flush out all the views and integrate them. Mm -hmm. And we made more um, progress in three hours than they'd done in three years. Mm -hmm. I want to come in here, not for discussion, because we don't have the time, but I think we need another session. This points to some problems, as Antoinette alluded to nicely, the scaling. That is exactly the conversation we had with Paul Adler about democratic socialism. The scaling is the problem because the moment you go away from the law of big numbers where you just make everybody vote and then some you say in your book at some stage everybody gets involved in everything well actually no because we want to decentralize right so we need the right people who might amongst themselves care about the problem know the answers and actually through that process you described get out to that which of course immediately poses the question of how do we organize that and what are the interdependencies and if you look at the evidence um, medium scaling. Zappos. Yeah. Everybody abandoned holacracy because it wasn't really scalable. Yeah, I'm not advocating holacracy because, like, for the reasons that you describe, I think we the, the, that's why we're advocating. If holacracy is the yellow version, there's a teal version which uh, transcends and includes, right? So, um, and so I've seen Zappos and all of that stuff, and I, I you know, spent some time with uh, the two founders of holacracy some years ago, talking to them, and I actually tried to help them scale them and the, which was one of the stepping stones to get to crowdocracy so i saw the problems i saw the issues and actually we've evolved past that uh, but to the scaling point you have to start small because uh, what you've got in the political process is non-participation uh, i mean when people are asked to vote you get 20 percent turnout or 30 percent turnout so most people are so disenfranchised with the ineffectiveness of that system they don't even bother which is ter a terrible thing right um, and it's because they know the system doesn't work. So um, 
actually, if you do crowdocratic process, so if you take that board of 17 people and they've got 40 minutes and they got an answer, which they were all happy with. So there was no cabinet responsibility and you've got to, you know, uh, you know, uh, you might have dis no dissent outside the room and all, you know, all that sort of stuff you see in corporations. They all aligned. So there was no dissent. There was a genuine alignment and integration. So imagine you teach 17 people and then you do another group of 17 and another group of 17 and another. So you create these small pods. Once you learn and you start to build confidence that this way of doing the debate, flush the diversity and integrate it, then you can start to do the debate at scale because people understand the rules, the process of how you get to wisdom. One thing, and I'm sure it wants to come in on direct democracy, just one, one thought to add. So one, I think, Alan, what you point to is exactly what Margaret Osolo explained with regards to sortition in ancient Athenian democracy, where people, because they had a say, were starting to get prepared and involved, right? Because I think preparation and knowledge and caring is a prerequisite for this to work, which also then goes back to the discussion with Stefano Zamani about Canaro's impossibility theorem, which states basically that social choice is impossible in a situation where people don't care about the collective outcome. So you need an ethos of participation that has to be built prior to this to work. And here, I just want for the listeners who might not be as well versed in holacracy as you are, Alan, I just want to point out one thing. Please go and look up these decision making processes, because it's, as Stefano pointed out, it's ridiculous that people don't understand holacracy. The, the core of the decision making by consent, using objections to integrate the final decision is absolutely fundamental. And here again, I would say that at least in sociocracy, all objections are qualified on the common goal. So this is really the instrument to take personal preferences out of the game in the decision-making process, which is what allows for integration. Because if people agree on the constitutive collective end, then such a right. process is possible. And I think that is really important in the- so, so you're totally right. So that came very clearly when we did the unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. So when we- created like eight diverse tables of all these different stakeholders, we said, look, uh, I want you to do two things, which is start to define what you think the five or six dimensions, the big dimensions of this problem are that we really need to sort, and then uh, come up with a suggestion on any of them, which would take us one inch to a better place than we are today. So we lowered the bar. We're not trying to fix the whole thing, just a little bit better than the mess we're in today. That's all we want. And by the way, when you come up with your answer, your answer has to work for you and your organization, whatever stakeholder perspective you're coming from, but it also has to work for everybody else around your table. So you cannot come up with an answer and just foist your answer on the others if it doesn't work for them. Those are the rules. It completely changed the debate, right? So we stopped people privileging their own, I'm right, you're wrong, my answer, I just need to impose my answer. That was described as a failure of the process, right? Right up front exactly as you're describing, is you disallow the individual answer to trump the collective answer. It has to transcend and include both, which is what skillful integration is. So it's not like the tusk is the right answer, and I'm imposing the tusk over the tail and the, the leg and the ear. You know, the tusk has to be in there, but so does the tail and the leg and the ear. Then we find the elephant, which includes the tusk, the tail, the leg and the ear, right? So if you set it up that way, you actually get closer to a much better quality answer. And Charlene, I think one thing you point to, and I'll turn it then to you, yeah. is, the is the procedural aspect. 
people underestimate the art of hosting debates, right? There's an institutionalized procedural aspect that might be required in order to attain a good outcome. And I think, Internet, maybe that links to your direct democracy. No, uh, but I'm going to bring the direct democracy right after. I was just kind of, that's more um, suggestion because you are working with positive psychology so often. It could be interesting for some of these uh, procedures to bake in appreciative inquiry as well, especially if it's about future project. Uh, and a second uh, thing which also um, could be interesting to have a look at is um, if you want to look at the moral um, plane as well, uh, of course, to look at Habermas. Is there any way to bring discourse ethics even in there in some way? Maybe it's already in there, but I think that could be quite interesting because you would also make sure that it's morally uh, universally uh, legitimate then in the end. Um, just some broad ideas. Yeah, what I want to bring from um, direct democracy in Switzerland, and, and I think we do have a number of these things already um, in our system, and it's always interesting to see it, uh, to, to compare what is functioning, what is not functioning in similar systems, I'm aware that it's not the same. Um, and we have few data, but what the data shows so far is that people, for instance, prepare more, that they are more knowledgeable. This is where I fight with Oti all the time, but I, I mean, we have quite good data, I believe so. Um, uh, but there is one thing which you cannot heal with direct democracy, and this is the cronyism or the interest groups um, taking influence, particularly in complex projects. Uh, and I'm just thinking about the world we have right now where we have um, uh, big companies controlling uh, social media. We have big com companies even providing public infrastructure, so very, very powerful players. Um, so how do you deal with that? Because I think what we need in the future is going to hurt the companies to a certain degree in order to help planetary leadership. So how do you bring that into your cardiocracy better than it does, for instance, now work in direct democracy? Right, so I just want to, uh, making cardiocracy work, the critical game changer is that integration piece, right? And that requires a lot of skills. So we wrote in the book about we almost need, um, first of all, you need a sort of people who can facilitate the elephant emerging uh, in a room. And then eventually, once the uh, participants in that room understand, they facilitate themselves. But in the early stages, you need active teams of facilitators to teach the process and enable the crowd to be able to facilitate itself. Over time, the crowd facilitates itself. It understands how to emerge the wisdom. Um, and then, um, I'm not trying to get the point. Ask your question again. I, I think I slightly missed the point in making the integration point. So what was the... You're on mute. I definitely had, uh, had a lot of um, suggestions more than a question. The, right, the one question I really have, how do you make sure that we have no cronyism? No cronyism, that right. So let me do that. Is not, yes. or the big firms are not right. dominating again. Right. Got it. So um, in, the, in the risk of cronyism, uh, the simple answer uh, is development because cronyism is born of self-interest is, you know, what's interest for me and my mates and my cronies. Um, and that's because, um, you know, the benefit is my nearest and dearest, my tribe, my crowd, uh, because I don't identify with the others. Mm -hmm. So that's a constraint of, of maturity, right? So, um, one of the things that happens in adult maturity, when you mature, 
uh, how you identify the circle of your identity expands. So it goes from, you know, uh, sort of me and my family or my tribe, a sort of ethnocentric, uh, you know, to ultimately a world centric and then a cosmocentric, you know, is the, you know, who is my identity group expands as you mature. So how you overcome the cronyism is human beings grow up, essentially. Mm -hmm. As we grow up and become more mature, we become less likely to cronyism and, you know, insular self-interest. So you might argue that the global financial crisis was a sort of cronyism of the 1% lining their own pockets, you know, uh, for me and my mates in the financial sector. And let's create a system which privileges us at the expense of, 30 million people who became unemployed. Well, that's just tough for them. You know, it's a Darwinian world. You know, it's every man, woman, and dog for themselves. So that's just a lack of maturity because they don't quite understand the, in the dynamics between them and the ecosystem in which they live. So I wrote in the book that comes out in September, which is all about the rise of deceit. Uh, it's called Lieability. Um, which is, you know, some leaders, as we've seen, in, in, I won't call them out publicly, um, you know, have got this amazing ability to tell lies with no shame. Mm -hmm. So their ability to lie is a liability, um, you know, in both senses of that word. Um, it, it's, a, it's terrible for society, and it bakes in this. And it's because people don't see the consequences and they don't make the connection between them and, you know, the people who are the other group. But we're all in this big ecosystem. So that's a lack of maturity, in my view. But doesn't it mean, um, because I, I think we, we can talk about the figures which are always named in your books, but there are very few people who are mature, let's put it this way, mm. or second-tier people. Mm. Isn't there this, I mean, and, and, and on top of that, I don't think we have so much time left as well. So wouldn't you have some protection you want to have so that people are not manipulated again by those with, with the 1%, which is probably mostly not so mature? Let's be careful right. here. Right. And so um, that's kind of why Complete exists, right, is to help leaders to wake up and grow up. Because in the absence of that maturity, leaders make a lot of Uh, greedy, self-interested decision. Now, I'm not blaming them for that in any more that a teenager makes the decision commensurate with their maturity level. They'll make decisions that teenagers make. So that's I'm not denigrating that. It's just a lack of development. As I said right on, you can't denigrate earlier levels. We were all there once, right? But it's still a teenage decision. So the job really is to help uh, leaders who've got positions of power and responsibility to wake up to the fact that their, responsibly is, uh, their responsibility is much greater than they previously realized. And in that responsibility, they have to grow up. And in that growing up, they can understand the consequences of their actions on a wider and wider set of stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Now, if I'm you know, building a big tech company, um, you know, I want to create a monopoly where I'm the only player in town. But um, I often joke when I'm talking to leaders around the world, ask them, what's the best economy in the world? And usually the answer is one of the G8. You know, depending on where you ask that question, you get a different answer. It's usually one of the G8. Occasionally somebody says a Scandinavian company, a country or Switzerland, you know, occasionally comes up in the top 10. 
some people, you know, nominate an emerging economy, you know, because it's rate of growth or whatever. I said, no, it's none of those things. The best economy in the world is the human body. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason I say that is the liver doesn't try and dominate the spleen. <laughs> you know, the guts doesn't try and kill the lungs, right? <laughs> you know, but in the in economies, you know, we've got to kill the competition. We've got to dominate, you know, mm-hmm. it's just un, un, immature thinking, mm-hmm. right? And when you get this healthy ecosystem, you understand that and you get this beautiful balance between all the different aspects of the the human economy, if you will, great art, great literature uh, and evolution of the mind and of all sorts of things. That's the best economy. So I often use that, you know, looping right back to my days as a doctor, the best economy in the world is the human economy, the human body. And that can teach us a lot about what balance and growth and evolution really looks like. I, I just hope that Mark Zuckerberg and Peter Thiel are um, then um, going with your complete. complete. So, I mean, <laughs> well, because, I mean, more, I was... Right? No, but the problem is, as Alan, you said, we don't want to bash Boris Johnson. We could even bash some of the uh, banking CEOs that have declared... Yeah, thanks, are... but, but again, if, if you've grown up in a world where, you know, success is measured predominantly in pecuniary fashion... You know, that's how they, that's their yardstick. But as the world starts to wake up, I mean, uh, Mark Carney put a book out after he stepped down from the governor of the Bank of England called Value, brackets S, Values, basically realizing, and he was a sort of, you know, a stalwart of the f- capitalism uh, uh, and the mechanism of capitalism, going, oh, you know what, I think we might have overcooked the orange version of capitalism and maybe societal values are important. And Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, publishes another open letter saying you ain't getting any of our six trillion unless your company has a purpose and it's some societal contribution. So even the hard-nosed capitalists are beginning to wonder that capitalism, like democracy, has passed its sell-by date and something new is emerging, which it is. The only question is, is it emerging quick enough to save humanity from extinction as a result of climate-driven crop failure? That's the main question that faces humanity, as I see it. I think there is, and again, um, we need to move to the next section, but there's a, in the notion of civic economy, civil economy that Stefano Zamani talked about, I think there's, a, there's an acknowledgement of the necessity for people to become virtuous, people to develop themselves, but also for the structures to create this, the checks and balances and maybe those institutional procedures required to create right. the right context. I think that we need to look at both, and I think Antoinette's point on, what you call guardian, right? So you say the legislative should become a guardian function. Well, actually, I think Antoinette and I have been arguing that is the role of the business leaders in the future as well. They right. should go right. from the commanders and controllers to guardians, not only right. of their organization, but of society. So the right. leadership role might need to change everywhere so that ultimately we can hold the space for this development to occur. And of course, I will argue that's not a crowd anymore. That's a community. And that is exactly the constitutive element of a community that cares for each other. So I think that's the opportunity for business because uh, any observer of the political drain has seen this sort of rather nasty ethnocentric regression that's been going on globally. So political leadership's gone backwards in the last 10 10 years. Um, Religious leader leadership um you know uh we can argue about that but it's not moving the dial so it's down to business leaders i honestly think the only people who can really save humanity now are corporate leaders 
not least because they have a less parochial view because these big multinationals are by definition transnational, whereas you know, national leaders have a parochial interest just essentially their, their country. So they will always privilege that over others, not their country. Whereas, you know, uh, multinational leaders are, is where the game is at, which again, it's why 90% of all the work we do, I mean, we work in schools, we work with sports people, but 90% of all the work we do at Complete is with uh, corporate leaders, because we think that is the only place where uh, people can step up uh, but if you've got some of these FANG CEOs who've grown up in a system that privileges financial um, growth over all versions of growth, uh, we shouldn't be surprised when you know we're fostering you know greed and uh, you know and that that they maybe take that perspective and they want to create a monopoly. But there is no healthy system in the world that sustains that way. And I mean, in the human economy, if you have the liver growing and growing and growing, it's cancer. There is no healthy system in the world that sustains where the old sort of, yeah. that's the cancer cell. Now, um, which reminds me of your concept of entrainment, which again in your human economy example is an interesting mm -hmm. one that I think we will we will dive into after this call. Um, it also reminds me of the fact that we recently had a conversation with a, a younger guy who looked at us and said, well, the probability that you old people who caused the problem will fix it is, is, is rather low. So we, we might need to bear that in mind. Um, but I think, Alan, you're opening the segue to move us to the organizational section now, whereas I have to ask you the question, because, of course, as anticipated, we, are, we now have half an hour less, left. So do you have a hard stop or is there any chance to overrun a few minutes? What's your... Can I overrun a couple of minutes? Yeah. We can overrun a couple of minutes. So then, well, because Antoinette was already texting me, said, do we jump to leadership? But then I, I would love to look a little bit into organization and then go to leadership. And um, I don't want to miss the thing, Alan, if you can remind me at the end, your theory of the, the 500 organizations that have, are dominated by 300 people. So that, that change theory, I think, is something that is, is, is really interesting. But I keep that as the icing of the cake for when we close. So moving to organization, we are here to look at good organizations. You've written about changing the world, workplace changing the world. You've also looked at innovation. I want to start us off with, actually, I had in mind to talk about holacracy, but I think we have done that. And this the debate about holacracy versus sociocracy, if you're interested, Emanuele Quintarelli, who was also one of the participants in our series, he's written extensively about that, might be interesting just to see what some of the people today kind of argue about the different systems. But I'm going to leave that. Um, let's look at Antoinette HR practices, which is, of course, your territory par excellence. <laughs> um, do you want to go into that? And I'll leave it. Uh, do you want to look at the evolution? What, what are your key thoughts, Antoinette? Well, I mean, that's a question. We could have a look at the evolution, which, again, um, I would just um, suggest that people read the book. And we're going to also put the link up because it's a beautiful um, historical way also with lots of data to look till wave five and then of course you again have to find out how wave six and how wave seven uh, looks like maybe just to kind of bring the first five waves together if you would now have to define um, the toxic practices which keep us immature and uh, in, in, in greed and focus on money um, maybe you name us your most uh, five most toxic practices practices because that I think is always interesting. 
I think in many organizations that most HR communities are, uh, have probably got to um, the sort of profit wave. Um, so it's, um, you can see there's an HR director, even in the terminology, it's an HR director, human resources. So human beings are treated as assets, as a resource, like a piece on a, a chessboard. So toxic praxis one is the way that we even conceive of uh, a human being is reduced to an asset, you know, uh, a pawn on the chessboard. So that's not very, uh, you know, I mean, the beauty of the human being in front of you is just a pawn to be moved around as an asset to be deployed. So that's not great. Um, and so um, as, you know, uh, the HR community starts to evolve, you see, um, you know, that obsession with uh, metrics uh, um, and business partnering and all of that, uh, that's part of the profit wave. Um, but then, you you know, it doesn't really um, get us to the place we're trying to get to necessarily. So we start to think about CHROs, you know, so HRDs become chief human resource officers, which is slightly softer than HRD. Uh, you know, which looks hard, you know, HRD, it's kind of hard, isn't it? Um, uh, And then the CHRO uh, becomes a CPO, you know, uh, which isn't a character from Star Wars. Uh, It's a chief people officer. Oh, so we've gone from the profit wave to the people wave. So we're trying to reintroduce in a sort of green way, reintroduce the humanity back into the people practice. Um, And so, um, you know, not understanding uh, that the need for that evolution might be toxic practice number two, right? Is we're stuck in our ways. We've got metrics. We feel comfortable. We're measuring things. It's all good. So a closed mind to the ongoing nature of evolution would be a sort of toxic practice. Mm -hmm. Um, And interestingly, uh, when you deal with the HR community, often because they feel um, un- unloved and unrecognized by the commercial people in a business, um, you know, often treated badly, they're trying to justify. And now I've got data in my profit wave to prove that I'm adding value. Look at the cost I've saved you. Um, and uh, your cat wandering past you there as I'm talking, Antoinette. Um, so, um, but the closed mind to move to a more human-centric practice uh, might be a toxic practice in the way you describe it. And then CPOs, which is the cutting edge of HR practice uh, largely now, also evolves to something that's been described in the USA as a DDO. You become a deliberately developmental organization, DDO. Um, and so that's more of a sort of yellow in the paradox wave where if you truly see the value of people as your most important asset, not as an asset to be moved around, but just the beauty and the sophistication, the complexity and the wisdom that they can bring, um, then you start to realize that it's the evolution, the development of those people where the commercial value ultimately lies. So if you've got a six-year-old, you're not going to run your company with a board full of six-year-olds. If you've got a bunch of 16-year-olds, you'll probably run your company better. If you've got a bunch of 26-year-olds, it might be a little bit more mature, a bit more sophisticated. So you start to realize that the development of the people 
becomes a, itself a strategic advantage. That's what a DDO is. So a CPO becomes a CDO, mm-hmm. right? So you develop into, uh, so you're a long way from HRD. <laughs> you're now a CDO, Chief Development Officer. Mm-hmm. So you're enamored with the difference between L and D. So when you're seeing most HR practices, you've got the learning and development department, but it's all L and no D. So we're going to go on learning experiences. We're a learning organization. And what we're really doing there is we're privileging the acquisition of skills, knowledge, and experience. Now, they're all important, but that's 20% of the value. Mm-hmm. In L&D, 80% of the value, in my view, exists in the D. So toxic practice three is the failure to distinguish learning from, develop, from development, right? So actually, that is unbelievably critical. So think of learning as a horizontal process. You're building a bigger base of knowledge and development is a vertical process. You're going up the evolutionary scale. And with each new level, stuff comes online that didn't even exist at the previous level. That's the nature of virtual de- ver- ver- of vertical development. So- I'm um, going one quote, Alan. Um, yeah. our, our friend, late good friend, Brian Unger, Chief Purpose mm-hmm. Officer of Decorian, who was one of the case studies in Bob Keegan's uh, deliberately development organization uh, mm-hmm. called the everyone culture or whatever the book was was mm-hmm. called and we're going to interview bob hopefully soon and mm-hmm. um, he always said there's a big difference between learning and development like you suggest he said learning is about knowledge development is about letting go mm-hmm. and that really has stuck with me i think it's a mm-hmm. very very interesting kind of concept right so also in the correlation with power mm-hmm. i think the other thing that comes to mind is simon western who talks about eco leadership so again mm-hmm. i think in this next wave, there also needs to be an examination. Is it still individual leaders that matter? Is it leadership as a capacity, as a capability of the collective? As Peter Senge suggested, leadership is a capacity, capability of a people to create its future, right? So is it transcendence there as well? But just throwing that in. I think you're, as we discussed earlier on, who you do identify as, um, that expands. So you start to identify with a bigger and bigger collective. So when you're an infant, you're extremely egocentric. Your identity is wrapped up in a very small scale, you know, with yourself. But as you grow uh, as a human being, usually you touch it for the first time at 12 or 13, where you go into something called in, uh, transpersonal. 12 and 13-year-olds suddenly start to become aware that they're not the center of the universe. So they start getting interested in ecology. So this is where Greta Thunberg started. It's a natural stage of evolution is you start to understand there are things beyond you that matter. That's the transpersonal stage. Now, usually it fails. So, um, and, and by the way, you know, as teenagers start to become aware, there's stuff beyond themselves and uh, it's not just all about them. So they, they're, they're, they start to let go, to use your phrase, of their egocentricity uh, a teenage battle, you know, starts to ensue. Well, uh, who's making the rules for this evolving person? Does a teenager set their own rules? Does a parent? And you have a sort of, and parents try to suppress that stage, um, you know, and the battle ensues. And regardless of who wins that battle, when they leave home, a much bigger parent called society pushes them back down and represses their exploration. Uh, so you've got to get a job, you've got to become a citizen, you've got to get a career, you've got to get a party. You've got to follow all the rules of society. So most people go back, either are pushed back into the, um, the maturity of an eight-year-old, or they're sort of bobbling around in that sort of teenage 
phase, but they never make it beyond the transpersonal stage of development. Mm. Um, and so that's what we've got in organizations. Mm. Um, society is, you know, trying to make us be a certain way rather than where if you're in a DDO, you're going, oh, hang on a minute. Actually, if we encourage that flourishing, if we encourage that expansion, people as they grow and mature identify very differently. They let go of some of the things that they were gripping onto, mm-hmm. uh, particularly the nature of self. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so just to leave one final thought is I was talking to uh, one of the, uh, the greatest Zen masters in America some years ago, and he said this thing about uh, the self and the identity. He said, when you've sat on the cushion for 40 years, eight hours a day, like I have, you, you start to realize that the nature of self is just a collection of ideas held together by spit. Um, I you let go of it. It's a construction. It's not really true. Um, and so when you mature, when you evolve, you let go increasingly, as you say, you let go of the tribe and you identify with a wider tribe, you let go of the egocentric identity, and you identify with a much more expanded thing. So that's what happens when we mature, and therefore we make wiser decisions that are in the benefit of everyone, not just the individual or the small tribe. So um, maybe just to summarize, because I think we are, again, uh, very nicely in leadership um, topics. Um, uh, You brought up a number of of points, for instance, uh, not calling out humans, human resources. Uh, You clearly said we have to really uh, look at maturing as well. Uh, and not mechanistic training or horizontal skills training. Uh, you were saying something about KPIs and measurement and the measurement mania is not very helpful. In the book, you also clarified that some of the practices we use in the orange wave, such as pay for performance, are of course probably producing the greed in the first instance, which wasn't there before. So institutional structures too would have to change just to kind of bring it a little bit back on this institutional level. Uh, And I also want to bring us back to one thing you said in the beginning, which I really liked. You said, well, there are different types of development. We also have moral development. You then said compassion. So it's not necessarily Kantian Colbert, but you were going to in a elaborated way of compassion, which of course also uh, fits very well to your emotional knowledge. and here I want to bring it a little bit back to what you're saying, what wave six and seven is going to be about, because we're going to see a lot of more, a lot more fluidity. We're going to see people working on platforms. We're going to have people um, manager, however they're called, developmental manager, let it open, um, will be kind of um, seeing on the platform how things elaborate. And here, however, I would like to bring the morals back, because if I read what sociologists are um, seeing at present, we have like at least two scenarios. One scenario, uh, surveillance capitalism, and I've done research on that. That's very much alive and kicking. Uh, and the other idea is, and that probably is more your idea, I don't know, is that platforms come to be governed and even owned by users. So you're talking about cooperatives as well. But again, for me, that also needs a moral discussion and moral development. And so I was just kind of wondering, what, because I, I, I mean, it's, it's then not as clearly as you said it in the beginning. It is always a little bit more with this value development. But if we look at the moral development, what has to happen? What is with moral literacy? Where is that um, going to be in these fields? 
throw in before you answer, Alan, one, one additional thing, because there are different theories of wisdom. And if you look at the traditional scientific theory of wisdom is metacognition. Whereas in most of the recent developments of wisdom research, there's clear acknowledgement of the fact that it requires an ethical maturity at the same time. So there's this notion of moral identity, moral imagination, moral emotion, and the necessity, if I make sense of a situation and extract the salient features that allow me to derive options and then make choices, that process has to be informed by some morality. It doesn't mean, as Antoinette says, it's Kantian deontological. So some people claim that's a little bit behind the Kohlbergian moral development. But there's some process that is required to decide which options I can look at and consider and how to choose the right options. And I think that is something that in this whole consciousness literature is still absent. It is, it is not qualified. There might be a line of development on morality, but it doesn't seem to make any entrance into the notion of wisdom. So maybe adding to Antoinette's question of where's the moral development in this? And then is wisdom not dependent on the development of morality? Well, wisdom is dependent on the, on the evolution of morality. And I think one of the reasons it's probably less spoken about uh, is because it's a fairly advanced phenomena, right? So imagine this, that um, a lot of uh, adults, you know, 40, 50, 60 on the outside, but on the inside, 8 or 14, uh, the battle is at a much less sophisticated level. Uh, I'm just frustrated all the time and I can't do it, you know. We haven't even got to the moral questions of the day, which are super complex. You know, we're still dealing with my overwhelm and my stress and my irritation and my frustration. So we're really in the realm of um, uh, emotional regulation before we can even deal with identity. So in the evolution, you know, there's a huge amount of work to be done, which is often where we start with many people, is really giving them the skills to become much more uh, resilient, uh, you know, well-being and all of that. So millions of people struggling in that very first level. This is a long way away from the moral conversation, right? So let's imagine, you know, our app works and millions of people start to become more emotionally literate and, uh, and have the skills they need to get to a much, you know, pathologically cheerful every day. Right. And then you're on to the conversation about, well, who are you? The identity conversation is the sort of next. We still haven't got to morality. Mm. Right. And as you as we've just touched on is as the identity evolves, you start to let go of the egocentricity and you start to see yourself expand. Then that starts to get you into the moral conversation. So I think one of the reasons it's not as widely debated in corporations or in society is it's a way more sophisticated debate and complex debate than where a lot of the crowd really is. You know, a lot of the crowd is still struggling on a day-to-day -day basis, um, you know, with just surviving emotionally. Um, so until we lift that and then we lift the identity debate, eventually we get to the morality debate. And I think one of the really interesting things, um, I mean, I've got a book I'm preparing at the moment about the evolution of, uh, of artificial intelligence uh, and what role does artificial intelligence have in morality. So imagine this, um, you know, if you look at humanity, humanity has got a lot of history for doing some morally reprehensible things. I mean, you mentioned the Holocaust uh, earlier on. Um, so when we write code 
uh, you know, which drives the AI, who's writing the code, right? Is it a white supremacist or is it the Dalai Lama? That matters, right? If you've got white supremacists writing code, you get white supremacist code. If you've got the Dalai Lama at a much higher level of moral evolution writing code, you get a different sort of code. So um, actually where I see AI going is a sort of synergistic relationship uh, with humanity is actually imagine a world where uh, you teach AI moral levels of moral sophistication uh, and you teach the AI until eventually the AI can code itself. So once it understands the rules of its own evolution, it might be able to evolve a level beyond even humanity can get to. And then when we're in a world where AI can come up with a better moral standard than humanity itself. So it's really hard because it can ask, Antoinette mentioned Habermas, right? So mm -hmm. if you look at Habermasian dialogic ethics, you, you have a challenge with the quite idealistic conditions that are required in the dialogic procedure for morality to arise. But one thing is clear, morality in a pluralistic context, as in a postmodern society, is dependent on dialogue, right? With AI, that is really hard because you would need to, as you said earlier, you would need to move from aggregation to integration. And that is very often really a human competency to bring different aspects together, which again points me to the guardians that you described, because I'm almost thinking that is like the figure of the elders that were preparing rites right. of passage in some of the more right. kind of ancient people that we are we are also referring to. So, and with AI, the practical example, of course, working for a bank, I can tell you with machine learning and basically the, the, the application of, of algorithms, right? So it's dumb algorithmic pattern detection. I cannot tell you anymore, if I'm not careful, who I'm giving a loan for what reason, right? And as you say, even if the person who was in the white supremacist writing the code, the way that billion data points have been aggregated by the mechanism, which nobody understands anymore, might have well pointed to the fact that actually people that are living in South London because of the correlations of the data, will not get any more loans from so you're, you're back to the debate about guardians, right? This is why, and exactly. guardians is essentially uh, a highly evolved, uh, mature human beings who have some sense of guardianship, not in the sort of cronyistic self-serving, you know, which is a not very evolved kind of stance, uh, who have let go of their own identity and their need for prowess and all those sort of relatively immature concepts, the guardians are the most evolved people we can find. And so uh, we need guardians in business. You know, crowdocracy is about how do we move to a more guardianship? So we argued in crowdocracy that maybe the judiciary uh, could get highly developed. And so they make, you know, they become guardians. So it doesn't matter which population, whether it's CEOs, the judiciary. Uh, the idea is with increased maturity, uh, we find the most mature people on the planet to be the guardians. So what you'll see in politics, in certainly in many Western countries, that's not the system. Uh, we don't look, we don't hunt down for the most mature people in society and then put them in charge of the biggest, most complicated problems. That's not how our political system works. Maybe it should, uh, but you know we don't have the best quality thinkers in charge of the biggest, most complicated systems. Because you're talking very positively about the Chinese system. And of course, the fact 
I recall being in a, in a, it was the second Obama election. I was with ex-members of the, the Central Committee of the Chinese Party saying, kind of, we can plan for the next generation. You guys can only plan for the next two and a half years because then you go to the midterm elections, right? So the Eastern system has a number of strengths vis-a-vis -vis the Western system. However, I would, I would suggest that Antoinette's point, being good in the university system and coming out with knowledge is not the same as wisdom. I, agree. I think the wisdom, the wisdom debate, again, that is a different stance. That is, mm -hmm. I have been elected in this position, which is endowed with institutional power, that makes me responsible to operate for the good of everybody. And I would say that is fundamentally not the, the, the paradigm that we see in some of the kind of Eastern systems, so to speak. I, but I, agree I, with you. I think yeah. we, we need to move to the leadership thing. One other thing, what I wanted to point to, Alan, is again, I think you will hit the dichotomy between wisdom of the crowd, which is algorithmic, and it's exactly the same as AI, because it's basically just thousands of mathematical algorithms which are being scaled vis-a-vis -vis what you quite nicely say, that's the fault with wisdom of the crowd, it's the integration capacity. And I don't see that in AI, as le at least not, not in yet. machine learning. Not yeah, yet, and it's because we haven't yet got to that level of program sophistication. Yeah. But uh, what I'm suggesting is that's where we end up, potentially. Right. Uh, so if you need, read Bostock's book, which is most of the authors on AI are, are you know, animated by the debate about when AI kills us all. You know, when do the machines take over, which, uh, you know, setting aside the fact that climate change will kill us long before AI kills us, uh, <laughs> but set aside that issue. Um, Would you say you are a cheerful person? I'm cheerful in the sense that I still believe there's hope. We've still got 15 years to radically change course, and I believe we can. Mm. Um, and it's through these conversations saying, look, uh, it's not doom and gloom. You know, we're smart. Human, humanity is incredibly smart, and knowledge is doubling every 12 hours now. Um, so the entire knowledge base of humanity is doubling every day. Um, and so the, in this exponential world, things are changing uh, uh, increasingly fast. Um, and so uh, that's why I'm optimistic. Uh, now, have we got a massive task? Yes. But the point about uh, AI is um, at the moment, uh, it doesn't do integration, it does aggregation. So it's not very wise. But that doesn't mean to say if we understand some of these things that we've been talking about today, that you couldn't code it in. Uh, we're not coding it in right now, but direction of travel, we could code these things in. So if you can teach uh, a machine, um, you know, the way that the human mind really works, um, uh, and we're still in very linear programming right now, but where it goes is you teach the machines, you know, about moral development. And say, you know, you say humanity has seven levels of moral development. Uh, but you teach what takes them from level two to level three to level four moral development. And once they understand the principles, even though humanity may not have got anybody on the planet got beyond level seven, a machine could learn, okay, well then what would level eight, level nine, level 10, level 12 look like? Uh, you can imagine a world where actually a machine could get there, even though humanity couldn't understand it. Uh, so anyway, I think that makes for a much more interesting debate rather than how do the machines all kill us? I'm reading for your book. And I think this, the, the cheerfulness, I think, is very important in terms of too many doom and gloom outlooks. We need a positive vision of the future. 
Um, whereas I think with the models of moral development or levels of moral development, Anton and I will struggle. So I think that we're gonna we're gonna hear back from where that is going. I think I'm gonna droop over this lovely idea of impeller approach and instead just ask people to, to read your book, Innovation Success. They're interested in innovative approaches on not going through what is called the investment funnel, which Alan rightly says is actually a filter, but it's actually kind of might be quite outdated. And if you know what a B is in the context of that, well, you have to read that book, I'm afraid. So I think we're gonna move, if it's okay for 15 minutes, because we have infringed now the time boundary that we had originally said. Is that is that okay, Alan, for you? Yep. Then then I would say, so 15 minutes, let's go a little bit more into leadership as we've already started, because I think this is the notion of how can we develop ourselves? How can we become part of this positive vision of the future that is not defined? And I think, Alan, you write in your book, this is not meant to be the solution. This is meant to be a proposal to kind of get us on this dialogue. Let's think about this thing because what we have today isn't good enough, right? And I think that is what people should take away from this conversation, get on board yep. with it. Yep. But what can they do? And I wanted to throw in, so the key things that I have are the aqua model, but I think maybe we just point people to the website where we will make that available. But in the context of the actual model, you talk about the vertical development of the internal um, and the external dimensions. Um, maybe again, the model on the behaviors. So you've got a model for 11 behaviors that are commercially relevant. Maybe we leave that aside as well. People can read that, there are many models. Um, and go a little bit into your LMP model, which is that vertical development model. But before that, I think, your aspects of the physiological coherence is something I've seldom found in other models. So I think if you could go a little bit into your 4D leadership development or capacities and explain the, the physiological aspects that underpin the emotional aspects, I think that would be very valuable. And then maybe if we've got time at Antoinette, I'm sure we'll have some further questions. We could close off with your perspective on the hero's journey of your last book that is coming out, Step Change, um, how people go on that journey. If that, if that could work. Antoinette, am I forgetting something important just in the context of quarter of an hour? Well, I think uh, I'm, I would be happy if we just went to the model. Uh, maybe. Yeah, so let, let me start with the story, right? So oftentimes when we're sitting with the, you know, the exec board, you know, the, the, the folks that run the company is we'll start with an exercise of, you know, when you think about the company in the next three years, what do you think about? Um, they just produce a lot of post-its. Uh, usually it comes out in an unstructured, unsorted list of, you know, just volume of things. Um, so we give, it's the first interesting insight is people aren't structuring their own thinking. Um, and then so we offer them a framework uh, and it's kind of like a, a modification of Ken Wilber's aqua model, right? Saying, well, look, there are three dimensions to all of our existence. There's what we're doing um, how we're getting on with each other and me as a human being. So being, relating and doing, or I, we and it. And when you ask an executive team, you know, when they think about the business, 85 to 90% of all their post-its are in the it. So they have what we call an it addiction. Um, and so our first task is to break the it addiction. Um, and it's quite difficult for many leaders, as soon as you have a coffee break, you know, they get back on their phones and snort a line of it, you know, oh, God, that feels a lot better. I've just done three emails. 
um, you know, I'm task target goal metric. It's an it addiction, right? And they're snorting the lines of it constantly. And so the first breakthrough is, look, um, your life exists in these three dimensions, I, we, and it. You're not a human doing, you're a human being, right? You're a human being that relates to other people, right? And you've got your life collapsed into a human doing with a load of tasks and targets. Um, and the acceleration, the growth you seek doesn't come from a slightly better tweaked process or a bit of business re-engineering or a bit of restructuring. The huge acceleration actually comes predominantly from I and we and not it. So imagine this is imagine you're a six-year-old and we help you develop and you become a 12-year-old. Your brain goes a lot faster. So as a neuroscientist, you know, I can teach your brain to go three times faster than it's ever gone in your entire life. Would that be useful to you? And they go, oh, my God, that would be fantastic if you could do that. Can you do that to me now before Tuesday? Um, and I say, well, look, I'm not going to only just teach you to treble the speed. I'm going to teach you how to double the quality. So imagine I teach you as a neuroscientist how to treble the speed and double the quality of your own mind. Would that be useful to you commercially? Oh, my goodness, that would be a game changer, right? I said, okay, well, so that's an I development. That's nothing to do with the business system and the process re-engineering and the metrics and the spreadsheets and all of that. That's an I development. Now, in order to do that, when was the last time you had a meeting with yourself? What? A meeting with yourself? Oh, I don't have a meeting with myself. Why not? Too busy doing things. There's the problem, right? Um, so they never push back and uh, are curious about the thing that would give them the biggest game change is a change in themselves. If they trebled the quality, uh, so trebled the speed and doubled the quality of their own mind, that would game change the entire business. But that's not even on the radar. That's not something that they come up with. What they come up with in terms of the things they're paying attention to is top line, bottom line, you know, business process, you know, performance management systems, competitive radar or, or operational risks, all of the it stuff. So the first task is to you look, you're three-dimensional, and in fact, you're four-dimensional because it's the level of sophistication in the I, the level of sophistication in the we, the level of sophistication in the it. So that's the fourth dimension. So that's why we talk about 4D leadership, and the leadership journey really starts with I, and that's where you have zero post-its. So you might have you know, 85 to 95% of your post-its in the it, and maybe 5 or 10% in the we. You've got none in the I. And that's where leadership starts. It's not even on your radar. Um, and so when we dig into the eye and we look at the human being as a complex system, what facilitates much greater levels of insightfulness? Well, I can tell you, if you look at the human body as a complex system, uh, each part of the human body is sending signals uh, to other bits. So your heart beats, you know, so that sends a pressure wave all over the body. It creates a spike of electricity. That's your ECG or your EKG if you're in America. Um, these signals are sent to all the other cells. So every bodily system is communicating to every other bodily system. So it's, a, a, it's like a big factory, you know, messages going left, right and center. Um, now, what tends to happen is those messages are chaotic and erratic. Uh, the notion of coherence is when you get stable dynamism in the signal particularly the electrical signal of the heart. So the way that the human system works in complex systems, there are always some signals that are more important and valuable than others. So just like, you know, uh, if you take a business, the signal usually between the CEO and the CFO might be slightly more important than the signal between the person that hoovers the carpet in your office and the person that empties the bins. We would hope, right? 
So the CEO and the CFO, that signal probably has more value to the functioning of the entire system than the signal between two cleaners. And so it is with the human body. The signal between the heart and the brain probably has more, and it's the electrical signal. So what you can see is you can track that electrical signal. So if you can visualize the idea that your heart rate is fluctuating up and down, it's called heart rate variability, in a fairly erratic fashion, it looks like the, the needle on a seismograph. So if you look at somebody's heart rate over time during a normal working day, it's fluctuating like the needle on a seismograph in a sort of what you might call chaos. Now, we can train people to get the same amount of variation, but rather than erratic variation, we get stable variation. That's what coherence is. It's stable dynamism. Now, what happens is it facilitates brain function. Mm. So the coherence unlocks much better quality thinking. When you put somebody under pressure, what you do is you'll amplify the chaos and the amplification of that chaos causes a DIY lobotomy, right? So your brain will shut down under pressure and that's a testable phenomenon. We actually have game shows that do this. So you have a game show and a panel show where the compare throws the question, a very simple question to somebody who's on the panel and they get brain shut down and they blurt out a, a stupid answer and everybody laughs. So all human beings are at risk of this self-inflicted lobotomy when they're under pressure, right? So you, and you can put anybody under pressure, just go and stand too close to them, invade their personal space, and they'll start talking nonsense, right? The good news is you can control your own biology and you can turn your frontal lobes, the clever part of your brain, you can turn your frontal lobes back on. So coherence is often the first part of the journey for a leader is to become more coherent, right? By controlling their own biology, uh, keeping the, the lights on in their frontal lobe so they can make better quality decisions. So that's a simple uh, explanation, uh, Otti, for what coherence is about. It's stable dynamic biology that facilitates health, well-being, higher energy levels, and particularly brain function. I really like it because, I mean, again, your medical experience comes through in, in, in your book, 4D Leadership, because, and, and in the book, Coherence, because you've, you've got some indicators. And I think heart rate variability is actually widely tested in, in medical journals as being important for um, sustainable health, right? So there's a, there are some metrics that can help people to test on that coherence. I wondered if you could throw in another one. I really like your adrenaline um, versus... I've forgotten. Um, Relaxation and, and stalkholing. Yeah. There you go. So, so there's an so let me pick up. There's there's an obsession in uh, ever since Herb Benson wrote about it in the sort of uh, I think early eighties I think it was uh, the relaxation response. Is humanity's got obsessed with the nature of relaxation, like it's a good thing by definition. You know, Otty, did you have a nice relaxing weekend? Oh, you've been on holiday. Was it a relaxing holiday? You know, like that's a good thing. Um, I lectured to the uh, Institute of Psychiatry in the UK under the title Relaxation Can Kill You. So that put the cat amongst the pigeons uh, because it can, um, you know, because there are two types of relaxation. So if you imagine the vertical axis with arousal or increased heart rate vertically up and relaxation going down on the vertical. Um, and then to the left, you've got positive emotion. To the right, you've got negative emotion. So as you drop, as you become more relaxed, there are two versions. You can be bottom right, which is relaxed negative, or bottom left, which is relaxed positive. 
Now, what matters is which version are you, right? So if you're relaxed negative, that's things like boredom, apathy, detachment, indifference, or what my kids might say, what my kids might say, the whatever, whatever, dad, the whatever state. That's bottom right in negative relaxation. Now, that is, is very bad for your health. It's pernicious. And one of the reasons it's pernicious is people mistakenly think they're okay because they're relaxed, right? You're still running very high tides of cortisol damaging your system, and you're unaware because you think you're okay because you're relaxed. That is toxic, and it will kill you. It will be positive if you're bottom left. If you're in relaxed positive as opposed to relaxed negative, you know, peaceful, tranquil, equanimity, serenity, contentment, those types of state, very helpful right? So it matters whether you're bottom left or bottom right. So when you look at some interesting medical data on long-term meditators, there's some interesting data suggesting that long-term meditators die prematurely. And it's because some of them have confused transcendence, which if done properly is bottom left, uh, and detachment, right, which is bottom right. So they think they've transcended, they think they've transcended, but all they've done is detached. You know, they're sort of floating through life. They've lost the joie de vivre. You know, they're just sort of drifting above everything. They think they've transcended their There was even a movie in the 90s. It was called Slackers. That's, that's about it. But, I mean, um, uh, fascinating. And that's, what, that's why I keep on telling that you also, of course, are very firm in positive psychology and Barbara Fredrickson. So I'm, I'm all in the same camp. Um, And I really like that, that in your book um, on leadership development, you, you really use a lot of these also strongly evidence-based approaches and bring them together so nicely. But I have to bring up again, <laughs> and maybe you can help me out there because maybe I'm just not finding it. Um, uh, I've, I've learned a lot now about constructive development theory, but when I want to look up robust research, I really don't find a lot. Do I look at the wrong places or, or where can I find um, that they're really, I mean, there's a lot of saying what is this is going to produce. And I do see how difficult it is to measure, but still there's not a lot of things published. Where do I have to look for further research? The research on what? On, on constructive development theory. And, and uh, Otti is um, not um, in agreement with me because he sees it a little bit differently. Um, but I can also tell you where I have most of the problems and the, the numbers which are always given, um, how many people are already most mature. In my opinion, these are always numbers from the same source. So is this because it's just not done often enough or where would I find more evidence on that? Well, the, the volume of evidence is not massive because... Uh, one has to be fairly mature and sophisticated to even understand the concepts we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So immediately you're in a small population, then you'd have to care enough to create a, an assessment instrument. You're in an even smaller population. Then you'd have to deploy that assessment instrument with people in power. You're in an even smaller population. So that's why it's difficult to find the evidence because there isn't that much evidence out there because, you know, a lot of the people... Uh, you know, the scientific and medical community are, you know, the deployment of funding and research is going not into this. Mm -hmm. So it's not surprising that you're struggling to find the data. Uh, but what I would encourage you to do is to gather the data in your own life, because it's all around you, right? 
So you can see, and there's a very interesting, uh, in fact, uh, Ken wrote a very good book called The Marriage of Sense and Soul, uh, where the whole premise is about the debate about evidence. And I encourage all people who are interested in the phenomena of evidence to read that because, uh, again, we've grown up in science where only certain types of research is legitimate. So even when I suggest to people, look at the evidence of your own life, they go, oh, that's, that's not real science. That's not valid. That's not legitimate. Um, you know, the only type of science or evidence is double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials. Um, so I might say to you, uh, Antoinette, well, uh, okay, well, it depends what question you're asking. So does your husband love you? Let's conduct a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial. Uh, you know, because that's the only evidence that is legitimate, right? Uh, but you can't answer the question, does your husband love you, with an RCT. I completely agree with you. Uh, and, of course, the way we look at things needs to fit the research question. But I still would love it a little bit more to be discussed, let's put it this way, because I think that's just good sure. tradition. And that's uh, really difficult. I mean, I, I can see that the academic community is not very open towards it. I'm very yeah. aware of that, uh, to, to be a little bit careful here. But I would also kind of suggest um, that more of whatever qualification is happening would be made public. That's maybe what I would suggest. Um, yes. And because we have time now. And yeah, I think... Aside, um, <laughs> track. I think what, what it points to, though, I want to wrap up my thoughts on vertical development here. I think what it points to, Alan, is similar to where we have come to. There's a journey um, that people have to go through. And in your latest book, not by surprise, and I thought it's stunning that you've named one of your boys uh, Joseph in honor of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. You're picking yep. this up in your, your last book. And, and, of course, that is one of our favorites, too, in combination with Jung's individuation framework and the integration of shadows that people have to go through and so on. But I think what it points to is there's a almost physiological coherence that people should attain because otherwise it will contaminate the subsequent stages of development. Then there's a necessity to kind of individuate in order to actually become interdependent. But I think there's another journey that people need to go on to, which is that vertical development journey. I wanted to ask you some questions about your LMP vis-a-vis -vis Bob Keegan, which is, um, or, or rather um, Bill Torbett, which is kind of our favorite uh, on this for, for several reasons. Um, but people can read it up in their books. But I think component of physiological co coherence, a component of personal development in the interrelationship with others, a, per, a, a part of cognitive development, through these different stages that could help be helpful heuristics in that. And Antoinette and I will argue moral character development. That also has to be added on to because there is a necessity not only to cognitively develop, but to put that into action in a meaningful way, going, going back to that wisdom and decision-making that you pointed to at the very beginning. So in order to close us out maybe, um, I have, a, as usual, we do a little closure with a little quiz because a polymath like you, we need to tease you a little bit in, okay. in all cool. the intellect that you're bringing into. But before that, uh, elaborating on the hero's journey, Alan, is there is there one thing that you want to share? So looking at all of that journey again, is there one thing that stood out for you that you discovered which, which is worth sharing? Or do you just say look at your book and the original book again and, and see what it means for you. What, what, what stood out for you? 
Right. So step change, the leader's journey, uh, because it's basically Joseph Campbell's work as applied to the corporate environment, uh, 12 steps uh, and four phases of the journey. So um, there's something called vertical autopoiesis, right, which is once you've done a few revolutions of the 12 steps, you start to learn uh, what the mechanics are from one step to another. And then it start, your speed of going through the 12 steps gets faster and faster. And so the journey is unbelievably exciting. And once you've done the journey a few times or a revolution, uh, forgive the pun, it is revolutionary. Um, and it gets faster like a flywheel, like the spinning of a flywheel. So it gets super and super excited. So as we move forward into a world that's getting increasingly complex and much faster, we need to get much faster. So if we can understand the great adventure that we're all on, uh, and understand the details of these step-by-step -step processes, we can get faster and we can rise to the challenge of the future. I just remember people, I think Joseph Campbell once said that the true learning is in the abysses of a hero's journey. So crisis and, and post-traumatic growth are probably something that people should relish in that regard. Indeed. And I think, Alan, one thing that came up in a separate session was there's also the heroine's journey. Yes. Very interesting book, and there's some differences between heroes and heroines' journeys. So again, maybe people want to think about is there is there kind of a gender aspect to all of this, mm -hmm. um, which brings us to the final quiz. But before we go there, Alan, I really want to say this was a brilliant conversation, uh, expectedly so. But thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it, and I think hopefully our listeners have also enjoyed that kind of going through all that breath. And at the quiz. Um, Antoinette, do you want to go for the quiz or shall I start us off? What is your... No, I can go for the quiz. And I just want to add, there is, by the way, also a female version of the Jungian archetypes. Um, and I think we do need the female versions. But anyway, that was just a side <laughs> remark here. Um, yeah, to close us off, off with the quiz, um, let's see. We are starting with one question. What is the biggest problem with society today? And, and you have uh, one shot at it. Lack of consciousness, lack of heroes, lack of law, or lack of coherence? Um, lack of love. Ah. <laughs> okay. If you could help one leader to act from the integrative paradigm, whom would you choose? The next runner for presidency in the US? Vladimir Putin or the Pope? Um, probably the US president. Mm -hmm. Who will be a possible keynote speaker of the Integrative Conference? Angela Merkel, the elders from an Aboriginal community, Larry Fink or Dave Snowden? Or none of them. <laughs> Sorry, I had to add that. <laughs> having, lived, having lived in Australia, uh, I think what might cause the most interest is an Aboriginal elder, but it'd have to be the right guy. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I think they have a lot to teach us. People think they're unsophisticated, but they lived for 40,000 years without leaving a footprint and doing no damage. There's something to learn in that. Mm -hmm. That's almost uh, last uh, nice words, but I have one more for you. If you could start all over one thing, what, uh, what would you do different? One thing you can choose. Um, one thing I could choose to what, Otty? One thing you would do differently in order to make the world even better. Um, 
I don't know. That's a really difficult. One thing I would do differently. I think there's so much learning in when you make mistakes, and I've made lots. Uh, it's so valuable. Um, uh, I don't know whether there's um, anything I would do. I don't really live with regrets, so I don't know whether I can really answer that. I would do something differently because some of the most painful moments of our life are the moments of greatest learning. So I think we have to fossick, just extract the nuggets from everything. I think it's a wonderful way to close. And I promise that we will touch on your, your theory of change, but I will refer people to the book. I think it's a, an, another um, nugget to fossick, uh, one thing that we've learned today. And with that, I think, um, having slightly overrun, but it, well, boy, was it worth it. Alan, again, I mean, uh, thanks for making time. It was exciting. I, I love, as I said at the beginning, the idea that you're trying to bring a coherent theory across individual organizational societal change. I think that's unique. I think that's what we need. Personally, I think it's not there yet, but that wasn't the point. It was an opening dialogue. And I think I would uh, invite everybody, read the books, join the dialogue and help us. And Alan, once you've written your book on, on AI, I think we might have another round to see what comes out of that. But a big thank you. Antoinette, do you want to add anything from your perspective? And then Alan, final word to you to close. I think I give it right over. It was very inspiring. Thank you. Well, thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And just encourage anybody to listen, to um, love themselves, be curious, uh, be fascinated with each other. Um, relationships is the final frontier, to quote um, Star Trek. Uh, so um, if we can learn to collaborate better with each other, then we have a chance. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, lead us for humanity every Friday. Be there if you care. Thanks very much, guys, and um, speak to you soon.